Nima I've turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 10, and as you find your way there, would you consider a story that Jesus told? It's about a leader at prayer. The leader is praying with his hands up and is saying to God, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. And in the story, Jesus contrasts that leader with a sinful man at a distance, beating his breast, not lifting his eyes, and leaning on mercy. And the Lord Jesus tells us that it's the, not the leader giving thanks that he's not like other people that goes home justified, but it was the one at a distance who went home justified. As we prepare to read this passage, you'll encounter a leader. And the issue is the errors that leaders make. Now, when you think of that phrase, the errors that leaders make, what comes to your mind? What comes to mind are things like sex, power, greed. And yet, the errors spoken of in this passage are of a very different sort. It is as if the leader begins to thank God that he's not like others and begins to lead as if he's not like others. And in that, folly is shown and the gracious wisdom of God for a leader is revealed. Let's read together, beginning in verse 5. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. And he who quarries stones is hurt by them. And he who splits logs is endangered by them. The iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge. He must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we ask now by and with this word that your Holy Spirit would show us your wisdom in Jesus. Amen. Now we're befuddled when we come to a passage like this because uh, of all these proverbs and bits of poetry. But I'd like to remind you of the encouragement that it is, really. You see, if the prophet were to come and tell us about the errors of a leader, it would be woe to you. But when God through the sage comes and tells you the errors of a leader and gives you bits of poetry, it slows everything down. It means that you're invited to consider. It means that you're given time. It means that there's patience. It means that you're given room. It means that this is a hospitable invitation to look at ourselves, to look at God, and to consider leadership. And so even though the bits of Proverbs can be uh, puzzling, it's really a gracious provision. So let's take them in turn one at a time. The errors of a leader. The first can unsettle us in verse 6. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now, when a person like myself from where I'm from hears a passage like this, I'm, I'm upset, I'm bothered. I initially react to the imagery being used because I uh, love a story in which it's the, the, the poor that rises to ascendancy. It's the underdog, the one who's not expected to win, who achieves. And I'm also offended because I see this imagery of slavery and I think of my own American context and the history of slavery there. And it seems to me that Solomon is both applauding the rich and demeaning slaves. And so at first glance, this passage is difficult for me. But that is because I'm an American looking at the passage. And Solomon is not an American. And the poetry isn't Western, but Hebrew poetry. And notice the contrast. When you look at a, a poem in verse 6... In this case, folly is set in many high places in contrast to the rich who sit in a low place. Now the next verse is going to inform what we just read. This is the way Hebrew poetry works. And it's going to tell us a little bit more. I have seen slaves on horses. So that's connected with folly. And princes walking on the ground like slaves, which is connected to rich. Here's the thing. Notice that rich is not contrasted with poor. Rich is connected to a prince. A prince at its most noble is the heir. The prince is the leader of a people. The prince that is most godly and wise, is the one who will care well for the people. The true heir ought to lead. 
And the folly and slave here isn't connected to my cultural context, but it's referring to those who are criminals. Those who are in a position that they ought not lead. Those who are captured by warfare. Now, there are certainly true statements in the Bible about someone like Joseph, for example, who was considered a criminal and by God's grace became a leader. That's why this is a proverb, not prose. The proverb doesn't account for all possibilities, but it is saying it is generally true that the true heir who would lead well ought to be the one leading and the criminal the captured one ought not to be the one leading and the error then of a ruler you see is to appoint people who applaud your folly to put in position people who applaud your folly to put folly on a horse and parade it around for all to see and bow to rather than to put the prince on the horse for all around to see and bow to. This is an error of a leader. Leadership is a messy business, isn't it? And any of us who find ourselves in a position of leadership can make this error. Perhaps you've worked in a church or in a, in, a, in a business somewhere in which the person who ought to be leading isn't and is overlooked. And the person who should not be leading is given the promotion and highlighted. The person with the true humble character, with the genuine wealth, not just money, but the true heir, the one who truly cares about the people and the place, that person is overlooked. And the person who's brash, reactive, loud, full of folly is the one put in charge. Have you ever worked in a situation like that? And it's a temptation for any of us to gradually put people in leadership who are fools because uh, our folly resonates with them. And so we gradually remove those whose wisdom might force us to grow. And we gradually accumulate those whose folly applauds our own. That's an error of a leader. For those of you who know something of the biblical story, there is a constant question of kings and rulers and leaders and centuries later, Jesus himself would be standing before rulers who ought to be in low places, but they're given power, like Herod and another Herod and a Pontius Pilate and a Caiaphas, people who express folly and misuse others and scheme, while Jesus the true heir, humble, wise, selfless, the true care 
for those under his charge is overlooked and walks in a low position. What do we take from this proverb? Well, the error of a leader is to appoint someone that applauds his own folly and to remove those who would stretch them to grow. Perhaps to be so threatened by the air that we do not promote them and we make it hard for them. And that means that leadership is a messy business. But we also think ourselves immune. I'm not like others. I can appoint foolish people and nothing will be wrong. The second thing, I'm not like other people. I am immune. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. Here it is. Even a king in Israel, even a ruler of the people of God, if that ruler sticks his hand into a wall where a Middle Eastern snake is known to curl up, if a man sticks his hand in there, he will get bit, even if he's king. If he goes to work with tools, he'll get bruised. If he's not careful around a pit, he will fall into it. The error of a leader is to think that they are immune. They are now God's favored one. They are now favored and appointed in such a way that what happens to other people won't happen to them. That is an error. Rather than seeing that as a leader, even an anointed in Israel, I too am still a human being subject to weakness and difficulty. This is why the Westminster Confession of Faith, a document that my uh, tradition looks to, when it's talking about preaching and the serving of the sacraments, It'll say this, the efficacy of the sacrament does not reside in the person who administers it, which is to say, the person who baptized me and the person who gave the Lord's Supper to me, if that person should go off the rails and deny the Lord Jesus, that does not put my faith in jeopardy because the efficacy of the sacrament was not tied to the minister, but to God himself. It is a recognition. When I, uh, when I was young, I played American football. And when I played the position called quarterback. It's an important position on the team. It's a leadership role. And the wonderful thing about being a quarterback in American football is that during practice, you wear a red jersey. And the red jersey means no one can hit you. It's pretty cool. You're so important, you see, that you can't get injured. And so during practice, you wear the red jersey, no one can hit you. But here's the thing. (laughs) When it's game time, the people on the other side, the defense, they see the quarterback and there's no red jersey. And now they're talking to you, S-Y in your mind. I'm going to tear you apart. No red jersey. 
no immunity. I can be hit now. Some of us believe that if we could just lead, or if once I lead, now I'm not like other people. I can stick my hand where snakes are. I can use tools and not be bruised. And so what happens is such a leader begins to contemplate doing things that other people cannot do. A little flirting here and there. I'm a leader after all. I'm favored. Uh, Maybe no longer attending to the decency and wisdom requirements of ordinary relationships. Why should I wash those dishes? Didn't you hear how people loved my sermon? Don't you know I'm anointed of God? I don't need to talk to you the way other people do. It's an error. You're just as human the day you become a leader as you were the day before and you will be when your leadership is done. What makes you someone is not uh, your title, but God himself. You recall, don't you, centuries later, Jesus himself who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, taking on the very nature of a servant, which is to say he wore no red jersey. He was not immune. He himself experienced fatigue, didn't he? He himself was criticized and slandered. He himself could bleed. He himself would be mistreated. He himself, while fools rode horses, would walk overlooked. And he himself would die. No immunity. So if there's anything in you thinking if I could just be a leader then, that's an error. (laughs) And it is why very dear leaders that many of us have known have fallen, believing themselves somehow favored blessed. Remember, because Jesus, by God's Spirit, ministers to others through your gifts, it does not mean that you are favored. It means that He is faithful. In fact, He may minister to others long after you've rotted inside. Because it isn't about you, it's about them. And he will be faithful to his sheep. So be careful of thinking you're not like other people. If our Savior took off his red jersey... So then will we. And what a freedom. You were never meant to be omnipotent. Able to fix everything and always be perfectly put together. Only God is omnipotent. You were never meant to be. 
You don't have to repent because you aren't omnipotent. You have to repent because you're trying to be. You don't have to repent because you don't have it all together. You have to repent because you're pretending that you do. It's an error of the leader, you see. Putting folly in leadership, thinking myself immune, and now thinking that I don't have limits. I'm not like other people. I'm not limited like they are. Verse 10, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. You see that last phrase, wisdom helps one to succeed. Now what you have in this proverb is two paths to success. Do you want to be successful? Come on, you do, right? We'd like to be successful. There are two ways to get there. Both of them seem to work. One of them uh, pauses strategically in order to keep going. The other one never pauses and just keeps going. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. That is, um, have you ever, you ever tried to cut into an orange with a plastic knife or with a, a, a butter knife or something that's not been sharpened? It's the strangest thing. It's just an orange, but you have to push harder. You have to use more strength than the task itself requires. And you were never meant to use more strength than the task itself requires. But pausing is a waste of time, isn't it? I mean, if I pause to sharpen the blade, and my neighbor does not pause to sharpen the blade, my neighbor's now cutting more than I have, and they're ahead of me. But if you don't pause to sharpen the blade, and the blade is dull, now it takes more effort to cut the same amount of grass. I was talking to a young man who had planted a church. He was in his third year of planting a church, and they had started a school. And he was overwhelmed. And I said to him, you need to take a break. And he said, if I take a break, what will happen to the church and the school? And I said, if you don't take a break, what will happen to the church and the school? It makes sense, doesn't it? The error here is that I don't need rest like other people. I don't have to strategically pause in order to keep going like other people do. And it makes sense that uh, a text about an, uh, a leader of God's people would talk like this and say, you need strategic rest for vigorous mission. It makes sense that it would talk like that. Because after all, th these are the people who were given one day in seven to rest from their work. These are the people in whom uh, the famous psalm you might know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What's the next line? He makes me lie down. Think about that for three months. He makes me lie down. And so we remember what the pattern was, right? I'll, I'll walk it through with you, ready? This is the rhythm of such a, of such a king, right? Day one, 
Work. Rest. Day two. Work. Rest. Day three. Work. Rest. Work. Rest. Work. Rest. Work. Rest. 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 Work. Rest. There it is. The problem, you see, is that it seems to work if you keep going without pausing. It seems to work. And if you've been around in church life as long as I have, if you've been around long enough, you know this. If you see a church spring up and it seems to be ahead of everyone else in number and activity and everything else, and they have a, an, a leader who's a, a figure and everyone's following the figure and quite a speaker, but then you gradually realize that internally there's constant turnover because you realize that no one takes a break to keep going. It's all on. Then, if you've been around long enough, you begin to know it's only a matter of time. They're going to implode. I don't know if it's this year or five years from now, but it's coming. They need help. Why? Because it is an error of the leader to think that we needn't pause like other people do. Do you remember Jesus sitting by the well? And what time was it where he was so tired, worn out from his journey, sitting with the woman at the well? What time was it? Yeah, midday, noon, lunch. <sighs> if you came across your 32-year-old, maybe you are 32, if you came across a 32-year-old and it was 4.30 in the afternoon and they were sound asleep on the job and the fire alarm's going off in the building and the 32-year-old's not budging, not moving, what would you think of that person? And yet, it was 4.35 in the evening when the storm came. And the disciples in the boat were yelling, don't you care? And Jesus was asleep in the boat, 32-ish years old, tired, resting at noon, asleep at 4.30. Is he lazy? No. He was probably up in the night watches Again and again. But you have to stop in order to keep going. And the people of God know it. And it's an error to say otherwise. You were never meant to be omnipresent. Everywhere at once. You, you and I have to stop and let other people be there. You're never meant to be everywhere at once. 
You're never meant to repent because you're not everywhere at once. You're meant to repent because you're trying to be everywhere at once. You're trying to succeed by trusting folly. Trying to succeed by trusting folly. But what wisdom would say, take a break, rest, 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 and then get after it again. Then take a break, rest, 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 then get after it again. Yeah. It is the error of the ruler to think that I can appoint foolish people in leadership unlike others, that I have immunity unlike other people, that I don't have to rest like other people do. And then verse 11, the fun one, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. All right, you have to work out the picture. So there's the guy. He wants to start a business. He's an entrepreneur. He buys the snake and he buys the wicker basket. Puts the snake in the basket, puts the top on the snake and the basket. Maybe he has a sign. Maybe he has a costume. Maybe he has a flute. He sets things up, a little um, thing out there where you can throw money in there. People start to gather. You're gathering there. The kids are gathering there. People are starting to watch. He lifts the top off the snake. He begins to do the lute. He begins to do his little dance. And sure enough, that snake, that cobra starts to come up out of there. You know, and we're all watching and looking, and you're feeling good as the entrepreneur. It's happening. The business is starting. It's growing. Do, 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 do. And at that point, the snake sees everyone and sees you with your loot and your costume smiling, and the snake says, I'm not going along with this. Bam! And right in front of all the kids just bites you with its full venom seeking into your leg. <gasps> Covering the kid's eyes. What's the point of that? That's what he's asking. What, what was the advantage? You had the wicker basket. You had the costume. You had the sign. You had the flute. You had the crowd. But you did not know how to handle the snake. It's an error of a leader. To think that because they have the position, they have the crowd, they have all the appearances necessary, that they're ready. People get hurt when we're not ready. You get bit and you watch people get bit. Can I say something to you if you're a little younger? It could be that there's a, a position that you really long for, some type of leadership role you really, really want. And someone who's a bit older, who has the power to make decisions about that, at their best, I'm talking about someone who has your best at heart. They're not in the first position here where they're trying to keep you down. I mean someone who has your best at heart. They come and say to you in community, we see your gifts, we see your heart, we see your desire, we believe in that, but you need to wait. We think you're not quite ready. 
We believe you will be. But not yet. That can feel so devastating and discouraging. But can I tell you, that can be a rescue. Not just for you, but for those you would serve. Because to have all the apparatus, but not know how to do the job, hurts people. And it's an error of a leader to think otherwise. Others of us are sitting here thinking, been there, done that. I already took a position I wasn't ready for. And I've been bitten. And I've contributed to others getting bitten. So now what? Well, it could be. We need to call it and say, yeah, I got to step back. I, I'm, I'm over my head. It was arrogant on my part. But others of us would say, look at the grace. Even in spite of all of it, he taught me how to handle the snake. And somehow, our wounds were healed and mended and we've recovered. And we're not naive anymore. We keep the kids back now. We only use the snake at certain times. Has to be fed, of course. It was silly to bring a snake out on an empty stomach. I didn't know, but now I do. It's an error of a leader to think that because we have the appearance of the thing, we know how to handle a thing and this is where centuries later the same God who tells us about this wisdom gives us in Jesus the leader who knows how to handle not only snakes and crowds and people but he knows how to handle what it means to lead there he is 12 years old learning What's he doing in a carpenter shop for 30 years? The whole place is going mad. Everything's falling apart. The Roman Empire, the Jewish ecclesiastical establishment, Rachel weeping for her children for they are no more and no one to comfort her. What's he doing learning the names of trees? 30 years? And as he would tell us, even if his mother told him to perform a miracle or in other such things, he would say, it must be the right time. We mustn't do this before it's time. And there our Savior is, waiting until it's time so that he knows how to handle you and me and his people. And it's an error for us to think that we could do before it's time what needs to be done. And finally, if that's the most (laughs) 
picturesque of the proverb, finally, the verse 12 here where we'll end for our time, is the most bothersome to me and I would say to most of us in this room. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words. That is tough for a professional God talker like me. I talk as a vocation. And here he is saying, a fool multiplies words. In relationship to what? Verse 14, vision. You see it there? Though no man knows what is to be, who can tell him what will be after? It is an error of a leader to believe that he can forecast the future or she can forecast the future with their many words. Because who can know the future? Multiplying words. I was thinking about a, uh, all the vision statements I've done. I'm an American pastor. We do this sort of thing. All these vision statements and documents and more documents and vision statements and trying to get it down and just to write so many words. And all the effort to multiply words so that we have a sense of where we're going. And the importance of being able to help someone see where they're going. And yet the folly of believing that it's our words that will save us and secure us. What do you do in, uh, as a, a preacher with the knowledge that your words cannot save you or those you serve? That their greatest need isn't for you to speak louder or offer more words. Their greatest need is the word himself, Jesus. It's an error of the leader to think if I just use more words, all will be well. Well, that's a part of our culture, isn't it? Uh, have you ever spent time uh, with a text searching for just the right emoji? Have you ever worried because you received a text and there was no emoji? Are they mad at me? Have you been in a conflict with someone and you've worked so hard on the sentence because you think if they could just read the sentence rightly, if they could just hear the sentence clearly, that would fix everything? As if the issue of the human heart is clear sentences. And you know what it's like if you're in ministry. Someone sends you an email. The headline is concerned, and it's 750 words, and some of, them, some of them are in all caps. And so you receive that email, and you read it and react, oh yeah? I can all caps too? 780 words, uh-huh. Send, boom. It comes right back. Now they're sending it, 800 words. Now we're going right back, 900 words. Now we've done all this within 24 hours. It feels like three days, but it's only been one. And all we're doing by now is what? Multiplying words. It's an error of the leader 
to believe that our hope is in the multiplication of our words. We learn, don't we, when the email comes concerned, 750 words, all caps, we take two days before we respond. Maybe three. Maybe one. How do we know how long to wait? It's when our imaginary conversations stop. You know what I'm saying? We're rehearsing in our mind. And what we're doing is rehearsing how we win, how we make it clear, how we get it, rather than praying. And then you start to pray, Lord, please help them. And the next thing you know, you're talking in the first and second person as if they're right there. And what do you mean you're doing this? And you're just standing there in your living room. And what do you mean? And you said this. No, I said that. No, no. And sometimes people believe they've actually had a conversation with you. Has this been you? You believe you've actually had a conversation with someone, but you didn't. It was all in your head. You had the whole conversation there, and you think it actually happened. Prayer keeps going into imaginary conversation. When prayer can stay prayer, now I'm probably ready. And the response is, I've received your email. You seem hurt and upset. I hate the thought if I've contributed to your discomfort. May we meet. I can meet this day or that day. Sincerely, Zach. It's an error of a leader to multiply words trying to secure the future. No one knows what is to be. You're never meant to repent because you're not omniscient, knowing everything. You're meant to repent because you've tried to be. It's an error of a leader. What does this mean for us? It means that when, as Christians, it means that as we think about the same God who communicated wisdom through Solomon here, it means that we think about the same God who would in time send one greater than Solomon. And he would send a Savior unlike Solomon. And what would that Savior come to save us from? It comes to save leaders from their errors. Have you been a leader who's appointed folly because you thought you could. Jesus came to die for you and save you from that sin as you overlooked wisdom and kept it from the horse it deserved. Have you thought yourself immune, having a red jersey, not having to tend to the things that other people do? Jesus died for you, for that sin, so that you would be delivered from it forgiven from the folly of it and brought into the wisdom of it? Are you a person who believes you don't have to rest like other people? Jesus died to save you from that sin. The sin of trying to be omnipresent everywhere at once for everyone, which is God's position, not yours. He rose to purchase for you rest, creatureliness, before God? Are you a person who's tried to have all the appearances but you don't know how to do the job? 
Jesus died to save you from that, for the sin of it, presumption. And the people who've been hurt by your presumptuous decision, he died to vindicate them and rescue from it. Have you multiplied words? Trying to secure the future with getting your sentences just right. Jesus died to save you from that sin. That sin that condemns you. To think that it's your words that can rescue you or anybody else. When only he can. And in its place, he gives you wisdom. He gives you his rest. He gives you his sympathy and empathy for having no red jersey. He gives you his words. He gives you his competence. And when someone says, why do you lead? You say, because of him. He is my wisdom. He is my sympathy. He is my rest. He is my rescue. He knows my future. I'm his and he is mine. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to your word and to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Nima